2: Hello, and welcome back to the Celtics Lab Podcast. I'm your host, Cameron Tepetabai, joined by Alex Goldberg and Dr. Justin Quinn. We're welcoming back Cedric Maxwell, who just added author to his already illustrious resume. Cornbread's new book is called If These Walls Can Talk, Boston Celtics Stories from the Boston Celtics Sideline, Locker Room, and Press Box. So, without further ado, welcome back to the Celtics Lab Podcast, Cedric Maxwell.
3: Well, thank you guys for having me back. It is always interesting. And the fact that I have a new book and you guys are helping me highlight it. Uh, and before you ask me, just full of all kind of just stuff uh, about the Celtics' <laughs> interesting and stuff. has stories about my life, talks about Larry Bird. I think one of the teases I have, actually, I gave, well, won't even be a tease. I'll tell you, I actually gave an apology uh, to my teammates for 1985. Um, that was the year that I got hurt. And I think over the years, I've thought about it, like why some people reacted like, well, you know, he quit on us. He didn't want to play. I think was, I think basically I did not know how to handle an injury. Uh, mm-hmm. I had never been hurt before. And for me to sit down and my personality is like it is now. I don't, I don't mope around. I don't care what, <laughs> what life gives me. It can give me lemons, but I'm going to make lemonade. And because of that, I think my teammates kind of felt a little like awkward to the fact that who I was and what I was doing. And, and, you know, if I really wanted to come back and play, so, you know, I, I, in the book, I actually gave an apology to my teammates because of maybe my reaction or my lack of reaction uh, to me being injured at the time. Well, actually,
2: Max, I'm going to jump the gun just because we have it uh, in our Mm -hmm. notes later. Uh, it looks like Kevin Garnett wants to bury the hatchet, maybe just a teeny bit. You talked about this on air the other day. Uh, he posted on Instagram congratulating Ray Allen. Um, any thoughts on that, either compared to your
3: uh, reconciliations? I, or? I am I'm ecstatic in the fact that Kevin has decided to put himself in that position because I think we all realize as we get older that life is really just too short. And for you to have any kind of arguments or 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 bad feelings about people, especially thinking in the time of COVID right now, uh, you know, as many people have COVID and and hear the day gone tomorrow, and you mm-hmm. don't get a chance to express your true feelings until that person is gone. So for Kevin to reach out and give Ray congratulations, hopefully that's an olive branch for those guys to get back together because you do something special when you win the championship. You are ever linked. He, there will be forever linked in Celtic lore for winning the championship and they'll be ever linked as brothers and winning the championship for all the sacrifices that you had to make. So uh, I am so happy that Kevin has kind of put out that olive branch and I hope Ray grabs it and they go from there. I did a podcast I had uh, on my Cedric Maxwell podcast, uh, shameless plug there uh, <laughs> where I talk about, um, I did one with Paul Pierce. And uh, we talked about that, that relationship, how, you know, he said he had pretty much buried the hatchet with Ray and, and, and got over all that. And that Kevin was, he was hopefully Kevin was going to reach out. And I think they did that uh, when Paul Pierce was introduced at his Hall of Fame ceremony.
4: Yeah,
2: I'm yeah. looking forward to that.
4: And hopefully this is the start of a process where we can all wind up the four of us at a Celtics game to watch Ray Allen's jersey finally get retired, because wouldn't that be fun?
5: A lot of us Uh, from uh, southern New England
3: (laughs) would not be upset about that. (laughs) Well, I think you could be a little biased, but I'm a little biased myself because I keep saying this. That's like, look, Paul and Kevin, it was the big three. It wasn't the big two. Mm -hmm. And without Ray, they don't win another championship. They don't win a championship. Doc Rivers based his philosophy on the three musketeers, those three star guys getting together, playing, and coming out and leading his club. So if you're going to honor one and then honor another one and you miss out on Ray, and now that Ray is one of the 75 top greatest players of all time, then you're missing the boat to me.
2: I mean, I have to say, just as a fan, I was a teenager at the time. I think Ray was my favorite. So I, the fan in me says that. And um, actually, the fan in me loved your book because, Max, I, I feel like I heard your voice when I was reading it. Like you, <laughs> the way you say things on air is, as a Bostonian, you know, like central to my sports being. And I just, the book was so easy to read because it felt like you were reading it to me. So not to embarrass you too much. Uh, let's use that as a segue. Justin's going to start. We're just going to. Kind of break down the book and give us okay. as much as you want and if you want to save something for the readers go for it.
5: So for me this was actually a fantastic read. I'm an oral historian as an anthropologist it's something that I actually did as part of my training and I have rarely come across something that is so rich with so many stories that were from that critical era of Celtics history. I don't want to ask you to spill all the beans, but I mean you cover everything from like your early life to you know high school being cut from from your I think your junior team you said it was.
3: Well oh, I was that was from that was when I was in high school. My yep. I, I got cut my junior year. So yeah, I talked about that. Yeah.
5: Yep. Um Kinston, North Carolina being like a hotbed of and I like I, I love your theory about the uh, the the near nuclear accident that happened nearby. <laughs> It's just some fascinating stuff, but one of the things that really stuck out to me was uh, the story of of Red scouting you. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about
3: that? I was actually at um, Madison Square Garden, and we were playing a game, and um, everybody got excited. That You know, first with us country boys being in New York playing Madison Square Garden was already special. <laughs> But then to, to get to New York and be in Madison Square Garden and all of a sudden hearing that um, Red back, somebody said, man, Red back is here. And, and I looked over. and I looked over. He was asleep. <laughs> I, was thinking, <laughs> I was like, what? And then next said, no, he was gone. But that was Red's uh, way of really communicating how good you were. So he once he saw what he needed to see, he saw a skill set, he would act like he fell asleep. So, so everybody said, well, Red's not interested in that guy. Red's not going to take him. So by doing that, and all of a sudden it was like, uh, okay, he, he's no good and I'm walking out. So that was the Red Arback thing that was funny to me, the fact that he was, he was there, but at the same time, he was sound asleep in the chair and, and just threw everybody off, including myself, like, well, damn, i guess i must not be that good if, if real our back is here like you think most guys taking notes which you might do no with no notes real our back was just sitting there like your grandpa he was just like he's he just knocked out so that was really funny
5: some psyops there there was actually a moment like that when i was a a, a baby anthropologist giving my first presentation And the the woman who founded the anthropology of tourism pretty much single-handedly came in and sat in the front row of my presentation. I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I was just like so nervous to try not to look at her. And then the next time I looked at her, she was asleep. (laughs) She wasn't thinking it, though. So (laughs) Um, Another thing that uh, really stuck out to me uh, is one of my favorite topics. And I don't want to skip over. I mean, you, you have stuff in there like, like how Tommy uh, Heinsohn got fired. You have stuff about you know, how you met your future wife through, through uh, Don Chaney. But for me, one of the most fascinating periods of Celtics history is the moment that you basically became a Celtic very, very soon afterwards. The Celtics stopped being Celtics. and A lot of people don't even know about this, particularly today. Um, a lot of people are not aware that the, the team they think of as the Celtics is actually in Los Angeles right now. Technically, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that.
3: Well, it was uh, the, the the Bob McAdoo story.
5: That and uh, all about, it, yeah.
3: It, it essentially, what happened was that uh, you know my first two years were, were crazy. Anyway, I get drafted by the Celtics, and I'm thinking like I'm going to this super team. And at that year, we're going to have seven guys who are going to be who are who were all stars, and at least four of those guys I think were Hall of Famers. So for me, it was it was great going to that. And then all of a sudden, once I got there, everybody was old. All my players <laughs> I had. Kavlicek was old, Cowens was older, Jojo was older, Sidney Wicks, Curtis Rowe, Dave Bean, all these guys had been on the all-star team. And overnight, we became so young know, boy reminds me, yes, yeah, exactly. It reminds me of the Los Angeles Lakers right now. And the fact you've got great players, but if they were drafted, if you had the same team in 2010, you'd have a juggernaut, but you don't have that team. You have an older team that eventually is going to, is going to try to find a way. I'm not even sure with LeBron, if you can find a way to try to manufacture, but you can't manufacture speed. And so my team was like that. We were slow. We were lethargic. And um, so so that kind of was a, a crazy point for me, even to the point of, you know, the, the fact that and then a couple my first two years in the league um, never got the 500. I always lost the first two games. I might win the third game, but never got the 500. Uh, and that second year we got uh, one of my best friends later. I think I talked about that Bob McAdoo and uh, Bob McAdoo came from New York uh, from the Knicks and we ch- got traded at halftime of the game. <laughs> and I knew him from North Carolina. He used to play in the Summer League. And he came and stayed with me. He was so mad, he slept on my couch for the next two months. He refused to get an apartment. <laughs> he, he was so pissed off. But and then that, that was, and then then we got ML Carr. And the, the story was was really cool, was the fact that ML Carr came to Boston. We got him as a free agent. And then all of a sudden, it was like, okay, we are we are going to be in a position now where we're going to somebody has to go, and there was compensation at that time. Hey, girl, that's my my granddaughter. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> um, we got ML Carr, and we had there was compensation from Detroit, so Detroit had to take either me or take Bob McAdoo, and they decided to take me at the time. I mean, take. T- jake bob mcadoo and we get ml Carr, and people don't know the original my original number when i got to boston was 30 yep and all of a sudden we got ml Carr. he wore the number 30 and he had jewelry and all these chains and stuff he said hey do you mind changing jerseys with me and i had an established nothing in, in 30 so it's like man i just want a jersey i said what's the next number The next number was 31, so I took that one. And actually, I wanted to get number 33 because that was my number in college. Mm -hmm. So you guys now know that 33 was claimed by Larry Joe Bird once he got there. So I probably would have eventually went to another number anyway.
5: So about the – so the McAdoo thing is, if my memory serves – it really pissed Red right off, like to the point where he almost left to go to the Knicks. He was so mad. And they talked him down. Uh, A famous, famous taxi ride, I think, is, is partially responsible for that. But from that point on, there was other things going on with ownership. Harry Mangurian, uh, John Y. Brown. And if I am if I'm not mistaken, what ended up happening was uh, the owner at the time, I think his name is Irvin, wanted to switch the team to Los Angeles, did. the league wouldn't let him. So like basically like they didn't just swap the franchise, like like the, the ownership of it per se, they also took a lot of the players with it. What was that like? Well, the the
3: the owners the owners actually swapped teams. Mm-hmm. John Y Brown ended up taking the Clippers and moving them to well at that time moving them to San Diego Mm -hmm. and they did take some of the players um, from that team at that time and they moved them and like I said there was the the trade between the ownership group and remember we had um, at that time uh, John White Brown who was out of Kentucky was married to I guess former Miss America or runner-up Phyllis George yep. uh, at the time, who used to be big time. She was one of the first women I remember actually in sports, and uh, she was up there with Jimmy the Greek and all these people. But yeah, that was that was uh, that was pretty crazy. How you think that the Buffalo franchise should have been the Boston franchise, but it was it was vice versa, and instead of changing as many players, they actually changed ownerships between the two groups.
5: So after that ended up happening, a new championship era basically started opening because of that number thirty-three, Larry Joe Bird, uh, not Steve Kuberski, Larry Joe Bird. Uh, <laughs> basically, a lot of a lot of the situations that you see when someone is coming up and plays at the same or a similar position is. Not always the best dynamic, but you didn't necessarily have that dynamic with Larry or even later with Kevin McHale, you know, as, as he kind of started to come up as well. Like, what what was it like when they arrived and changed? I mean, the, the win total was clearly a huge turnaround, but I mean, I mean, besides well, the, like the personal level.
3: Well, you think about it at, at that time, I was the man. I was averaging 19 points a game when we got Larry and Bill Fitch came in. And and I was like, Bill Fish walked up to me the first day and said, "Let me ask you something. Who do you think is gonna guard the toughest guy every night?" And I looked at him like I'm am a lover. I'm not I'm not a fighter. And he's like, <laughs> "No, you seem smart. So you know you're gonna guard the toughest defender every night." And I'm saving Larry for the offensive end. So it wasn't. I think the thing too about myself and Larry, there was a contrast between our games. Because he didn't play as much on the inside, and I played in, on the inside. I played in the paint. So we really had a different dynamic. Now, when we got Kevin McHale, and got Robert Parrish, I watched my shots or number of shots I, I was taking going from being the second fiddle to the third fiddle to the fourth fiddle and sometimes the fifth option. So I think at that point, as, you, as, as people know or don't know, I, I, I sacrificed a lot. Yep. Um, Being on that team, and but you, it's it's easy to sacrifice when you're winning. When you when you see a clear cut opportunity to win, it's like I when you see when you see a great player come to your team, you don't. It, a lot of players get to the point where they want to battle I mean, I remember Ricky Davis when LeBron came to Cleveland. Oh, I want to <laughs> show you guys that I'm just scared, of LeBron. You can't fight City Hall. You can't fight gravity. I mean, those things are gonna happen. And for me, it was like, okay, how can, what's the best way for me to win? The best way for me to win is to help Larry become better. And then by him becoming better, I'm gonna be better. And then the team is gonna be better. So there was never any animosity. I know Kevin McHale talked about that when I got hurt in 1985 and and, and he put that in, and we put that in the book and he talked about me and, and being gracious. And, and probably being his biggest cheerleader now was. Uh, clearly, I could see that the, the handwriting was on the wall. Kevin uh, scored a game of 56 points. And at that point, I'm like, well, I probably won't be starting anymore here. <laughs> I think that my days are starting. Up now, And I would have easily come off the bench, but that isn't what they wanted to do. And um, the only thing that really upset me, I think, that I, I can think back on, Is the fact that once I got traded, I had never received a call from anybody, from any of my teammates. And that to me was just, it was very, very disappointing. When you think about the brotherhood or the camaraderie you've had by winning two championships.
5: So I don't want to monopolize the conversation about the book. So I know Alex has something he wants to ask you about. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I see the
4: yeah, no, well, I was just, it, I'm, it's interesting because, you know, you mentioned in your last statement that um, you kind of at times felt like, you know, you're going from Larry comes in and then all of these other guys come in and you go from the first option to the second option, to the third option, fourth option, etc. But all that being said, I mean, Cedric, we got to give you some credit here, man. You stepped up big time in the 1981 finals uh, and you were pretty clearly a big-time player in that effort. You won finals MVP, and Mm -hmm. there was one game in particular, uh, 81 finals game five. I'm going to read a quote here from your teammate, Larry Bird, uh, about what he said about that game. He says, game five belonged to Max. It was the most fired up I'd ever seen him, and it told me how badly he wanted that championship. He could smell it. He was getting great rebounding position underneath and we were all feeding him. He had 28 points plus 15 rebounds, and we won by 29. Max was just awesome in that one. So clearly at some point, you did become the number one guy when it mattered arguably the most. Uh, And I guess I want you, I was wondering if you could just take us through, you know, Larry mentions that this is the most fired up he's ever seen you. What's going through your head before uh game five 1981 to get you into this place where you're suddenly winning finals mvp
3: in a huge well, game well he didn't well he was gonna see me again in in, in 1984 versus the lakers in the seventh game <laughs> and <he might> be, <laughs> i was even more fired up then uh, i just think that i was i was mad because uh what moses kept saying about us it's like you know can you imagine great players we had on our team and and all of a sudden, you have Moses and Malone saying, "Celtics aren't that good. I could get four guys from Petersburg, and we could beat the Celtics right now." So when we had them down by twenty-five or twenty-six or whatever it was in that game, everybody on that bench was up there screaming, "Going well, you better go get them guys from Petersburg because the four other you're playing with right now they ain't working for you." So we were just <laughs> and, and we were just That's mad. Cool. And I remember they tied the series up in. In in Houston, and it was two to two coming back to Boston for critical game number five. And I was mad because Moses had just been talking so much noise about our team and who we were. And to the point where Billy Pulse couldn't guard me. So they ended up putting Moses on me. And the first shot I hit, he said, first he said, I'm going to kick your skinny ass. I was like, "Okay, all right. The second shot, I knocked that one down. He said, good shot. He said, lucky shot third shot. Nice shot, man. Nice shot. (laughs) And then after that, it proceeded. And that was in the, that was in the fourth game. So when I got back to Boston, I clearly wanted to establish some kind of dominance and that's how I felt. And, um, that's why I was, I was, I was so fired up for that game for number five. Here's the other thing. I've always, I always felt like I was a big time player anyway. I didn't I didn't need Larry. I didn't need Kevin. I didn't need any of these guys. I mean, it was obvious later on when I played and so many other big games and uh, even to the point of playing in that Lakers game and the championship series against in 1984. There was for the Celtics, there was only one MVP finals final guy in that room. And that was me. So how do you think that I'm going to feel about, you know, stepping up to that next level? And I'm playing against a guy like James Worthy, and it's so funny. I had the chance to talk to James recently about that, about the 84 series and just some of the things he said to me. But one of them that was fascinating to me was he said, he said, Max, he said, I used to love you as a player because he was from Gastonia, North Carolina. Yep. And he said, let me tell you something. You might not know this, but when you played Robert Parish and sitting there university in Charlotte, he said, I was watching that game in the front row at the, at the garden at, no, at the, um, in Charlotte, at the Charlotte Coliseum. So you always find these things out, these tidbits, which you go, man, that was, that's, that's great. I mean, I'm gonna give you a quick one about Larry Bird, which I thought was funny. And I think I have this in the book. It was Larry Bird and, and, and Pete Maravich. We got the great.
5: Oh, that's the best one. Yes, please.
3: We got, we got the great pistol Pete Maravich on our team. And uh, so he comes late in his career. He's trying to win the championship. So Pete's in the game and he passes the ball. And Pete gets the ball. He passes it to Larry. So Pete's man runs down and double teams Larry. And Larry forces up this crazy shot. Timeout comes. And and I was, God, I always remember that Pete was sitting there. And he said, Larry, you got to pass the ball, man. You're being double teamed. And I remember Larry just looking up, going, "If you're really fucking good, there would we'll be double-teaming me." <laughs> and that, was, that was one. That was one. One superstar, one of the all-time seventy-five greatest players, talking to another one like he was a peon. And uh, but that's how Larry was. He he had he had in his gene. He had the I don't give a damn gene, and he would say pretty much what he wanted to say when he wanted to say it. But when you have the ability to back it up. To the victor goes the sports.
2: Yeah, I mean, if there's anyone who gets to talk smack, it's probably Larry Bird. Uh, Max, I'm going to ask a question off the cuff. I, I it just occurred to me, um, and I'm going to—I don't mean to talk smack. So, uh, according to basketball reference, you went one of nineteen for your career from three. Mm-hmm. Which it, it was the '80s. Now, how could we hold that against you? Do you think if you played today, you would become a three-point shooter, or no? That just isn't your style.
3: Um, I wasn't a three-point shooter, but if I needed to be, I think if I had played in today's game, I would have had to be. And right. I, I, and and people are asking me that I was talking to Seth Sanders, uh, Hall of Famer for the Boston Celtics, who coached me at, at, at for a minute. He said, and he was talking to um, Danny Ainge about me uh, the other day. He said, Danny, I always wanted Max to get better. I always wanted to get better. I said, put something else in your game. He said, you have a great 15 to 18 foot jump shot. And, and he always told me that this line I always gave him. I'm like, I'm like, Sesh, why am I going out to 15 to 18 feet when they can't stop me from three feet away? <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was, that was probably part of my game that didn't evolve because I was such a dynamic score around the, the, the rim. I mean, I led the league in field goal percentage, not once, but twice. I was the first forward ever to do it. So uh, that was uh, just another stone in, in that. The, I have so many other little records that, you know, splash around. I'm not, you know, giving myself kudos, but <laughs> still even today I, I hold a field goal percentage for, for a field goal percentage record for the Celtics. And that was 35% 35 years ago, something crazy like that. Perk was chasing it for a while, could tell me he was going to break it. Paul Pierce broke my free throw um, attempt record one year. Uh, And so there were still things that I still have with the Celtics right now. Well,
2: I'll tell you what, as a fan, I kind of hope Tatum breaks that free throw record because we need Tatum to get to the line. Um, But Alex Alex is going to ask you about the the young guys in a second. I just have a few quick questions. between your playing career and your broadcast career um this is another kind of weird one off you spent some time coaching in the usbl Mm -hmm. i I just well first of all if you have any great anecdotes i'd love to hear them but really my question is do you think there's a market for a non-nba pro league in today's game or do you think the nba has just gobbled that up
3: i think the nba has gobbled it up and then now you have the big three and and all that other stuff so no, I, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, if there was an antidote that I had for my uh, coaching career was I coached for the Long Island surf. And one of the things I told my players at that time, because a lot of them were from New York, they were, you know, high strong. I said, guys, let me just explain something to you. If you were as good as you think you were, you wouldn't be here with me. And they just all look like, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. So uh, that was just just funny to have. So I, I, I that was one of the things I loved.
2: Yeah, I, I, I would love to see you on the sideline. I mean, I, I think that no, you were... no,
3: no, no, <laughs> no, no. I didn't have. I don't have the patience, and I don't have uh, the attitude that I. uh players even today and i remember doc rivers being around and watching him and i I think i might have this in the book i'm not sure but it it was my my view of kevin garnett who he was and doc rivers kept talking about is one time kevin hurt his oblique muscle (laughs) in the middle of the game and he wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna go back in the game doc wasn't gonna put him back in so Doc, so Kevin was going to go back in the game, and then Doc walked up to him. At that point, our my broadcast position was right in front of Doc and Kevin, so I could hear what they were saying. And Doc, Doc said, "Kevin, the trainer said you can't go back in the game." And Doc and Kevin, Kevin Garnett looked at him and said, "What do you say? I'm going back in that game right now." And it was like, I was like, "Whoa." And then later on in the game, Kevin made this huge steal, jumped up, put his Celtic, you know, popped the collar of the Celtic jersey. It was so cool. But then after the game, I remember Doc Rivers saying, getting on the microphone, saying, man, I'm telling you right now, Kevin, he he wasn't told to go back in the game, but he was begging me to go back in. And I looked at him going, no, he wasn't begging you. (laughs) I wasn't begging at all. He was going back in that game. So, because you brought up Doc,
2: I, I'm going to ask another question that's not in our notes. Which is, have you have you gotten to know Ojoka at all? What do you what are your first impressions?
3: Um, a different personality than uh, Brad Stevens. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably a little bit more fiery because Brad Brad was the kind of guy that you want flying the airplane when both of the wings are on fire. <laughs> it's all right, guys. We're going to land. We're good. Don't worry about it where M. A. would be like somebody get, get a bucket so we can put the fire out. He was, he is just that much more emotion. I remember, you know, uh, <laughs> I remember winning the free, winning his first, going his first games was coach Stevens. won it was a buzzer beater in Miami and he walked away with one of these fist pumps. Like this was like, he just looked over at Eric postion. Then waved his hand and walked on off. <laughs> I was like, how do you do that? So, their personas are, are completely different in who they are. They both are, are fierce competitors. They want to win, but they do it mm-hmm. in a different way. Uh, who they are and showing their personality. So far, what I've seen from Ime.
2: Yeah, I mean, you would know better than us, but it, so far, it seems it, I, I like the, the bucket of water on the plane. I like that <laughs> a lot. Uh, so Udoka obviously didn't make it into the book, but you have some sections on... Uh, the, the most recent iteration of Celtics stars. I mean, maybe that we don't know if that term is is applicable, but I'm yeah. going to swing to Alex because uh, the way that you describe some of the players is just tremendous. So uh, Alex, you're up.
4: It really is. Yeah. So I'm going to start with a guy that I think uh, we all love here on the Celtics Lab podcast. And uh, that I think you're a pretty big fan of as well. Heart and soul, uh, the fire of the team, as it, as it were, Marcus Smart, a guy who in the book you say, could have totally played in the 80s uh, and claim that you You also claim that he's the best Celtics defender ever under 6'8", and that yeah. he's like nuclear energy. So could yeah. you just kind of take us into those thoughts and like your general thoughts about Marcus, particularly as he heads into this year in this kind of newfound leadership role?
3: Well, he is the guy that's going to get you there defensively. And I played with Dennis Johnson. Dennis Johnson was a great defender. But Dennis Johnson, I think he guarded more guys his size where Marcus is taking on guys who have been much bigger. At one time, he was, he was guarding Porzingis, who was about at least eight inches taller than him. And Marcus just has a fierceness, fierceness about him. And not only did I say that to Marcus, but I remember Marcus telling me, he said, um, yeah, Dominique walked up to me, and said, you could play during the 80s. I mean, it's very, very selling you look at guys now, uh, you know, uh, that I look at. I I, I think that this guy's pretty good. This guy's pretty good. But could they play during that particular time? Kyle Lowry is another guy that I talked to. And I, I've walked up to him before and said the same thing about. And I remember he was it was him and Ben Simmons. Ben Simmons said, you know, wanted to fight. And they threw both of them out. He said, meet me in the hallway back there. Kyle Lowry said, OK, all right, I'll, I'll meet you back there. And he, and he wasn't playing. He, he was, like, <laughs> serious about it. So, Marcus it has that fire about him. And if this team is going to win, they're going to win, you know, when people stop complaining about him shooting and watch him play defense. And if you, if you saw the game last night, they had a game against Charlotte last night, and um, he did – ball is going to be a tremendous player. But after a while, Marcus engulfed him on two critical plays and got two steals and a turnover and and helped the Celtics win that game. He controls the initial point of attack as well as any player I've seen in a long time because he's going through the pick. Most guys want to go around the pick, go to the side of the pick. Marcus is coming through that pick, even to the point where one time he did something uh, even for me, it was a little low. And, and Matt Bonner, um, who I had remember
5: that, this, um, Big.
3: yeah, was playing against. Uh, he was playing against with San Antonio, and Marcus just wound up his forearm, and he did like, uh, you know that wrestler called China, and she used to yep. get that that running forearm and hit you like right <laughs> in right <laughs> in the area. Well, Marcus wound up man and hit my, Matt Bonner like that. And Sean said, and Sean was sitting there, we were actually in San Antonio, said, oh, I don't really think he fouled him. And the replay was coming up. I don't think he fouled Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> 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 so, you No, know, the, the amazing part to me was Matt Barnes didn't go down. I was like, I was just in shock. I was like, Matt Barnard started doing like this run to replay. I'm like, no, dude, I've been like, I've been like on the ground in a fetal position, but, but Marcus is just furious. He, he's he he is nuclear, and and you never can tell, and, and you need that sometimes in a player like that who can who will just go off, who will just go off, and I think Ime is going to maybe allow that a little bit more for Marcus maybe than Brad did.
4: Hmm. Maybe Matt Bonner should have played in the eighties as well. <laughs> <laughs> um. Um, so there's two more guys I want to ask you about, and uh, we'll start with my favorite current Celtic and maybe my favorite active player in the league, uh, Mr. Jalen Marcells Brown, uh, who you called a quiet assassin with a polite demeanor and could see becoming the captain of the Celtics. So yeah. what about Jalen strikes you as captain
3: material? Uh, first, first of all, I think he's so intellectually smart. And he's grounded in this fundamental belief that we're all humans and that we all have to live together. As most players in this league, they're, they're like they're in the uh, opera. It's me, 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 me. That's how that's how most players are. <laughs> but Jalen doesn't think that way. And because of that, I think he, he brings in more of his teammates. And they understand who he is and uh, what he wants to do. and um, I mean, he, his, his ability to shoot the ball, his ability to run the floor, uh, man, and, and I think he's a better defender than people like to talk about him being. But as explosive, if, I think a lot more athletic, and I talked to Danny about this, a lot more athletic than Tatum is. Whereas Tatum has to, it takes Tatum sometimes a long time to get into a shot, the speed dribble, the step back to the side. Jalen is like, this it's, it's like you snap your fingers he's gone Is either i'm going up with the shot or i'm making this move or or you know whatever this speed dribble he has which is absolutely insane so that's why i think that he's become for me it, as much as people have him in the background of tatum i think he's i think there are times when he is as good if not better
5: definitely agree
4: yeah Speaking of Jason Tatum, he's our next guy on the list. Um, So you have some interesting stuff to say about Jason Tatum. And specifically, um, you at one point compare him to Grant Hill, one of my all-time favorite highlight mixtape guys. Um, And uh, so a question on that, what do you see in Tatum's game that uh, kind of works in that Grant Hill comparison?
3: Uh, There are times he can be explosive. He's smooth. That's what you used to think about Grant Hill. It wasn't anything that he kind of, but he was smooth. The way he kind of went by people, he was—you know—he was able to get up in the air. Come here, girl. Come here. Come here. Come here. <laughs> I have my granddaughter here, but he was just—he's just smooth. And and you think about—it's it, like you remember we got peanut butter, and some of it's chunky, some of it's smooth. Well, he's that smooth part where he's <laughs> able to kind of kind of just get to the basket and squirrel in. Moves going away from his body using his left hand. Uh, then the, his length. I think that's the biggest thing. Essentially, about almost six nine now. And then I think the biggest thing watching him grow now in his shoulders. And when I watch him grow in the show, he's get, he's getting a lot bigger. And uh, the thing that I want from those two guys, and I talk about Brown, I talk about Tatum. I know they probably played and probably, and I've said this before, they probably played and together probably over 850 games. I'll let you guys use your mental roller decks. Tell me a time that you saw either one of those guys walk up to another player after they did something to him and say, if you do that again, I'm a." <laughs> Can you give me a time that nah. that happened? And you can't tell me another player in this league that is like that. As much as you love Steph Curry and you think he's the baby face assassin you can see Steph Curry when he was like oh, he you know yelling the script I want to see those guys take that and not all the time I'm not saying I want to see them fight all the time but I would like to see them take that stance and that's going to make the other players around them that much more potent I think because you know it's like hey if our leaders get if our leaders are and what do you think that you know we're about to do right now
4: It's interesting that you say that. Jalen mentioned, I think, early kind of in the preseason that that's something that he was looking to kind of do uh, this year to make it so that people kind of know that they have to respect him and that he's not going to put up with that anymore. So we'll see how that develops. I have one more Tatum question for you. Um, Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. one of the big things about Jason Tatum's story is that uh, Jason Tatum, despite the Celtics having the number one pick the year he was drafted, did not go number one overall because the Celtics traded back uh, with the Philadelphia 76ers. Trick uh, Yeah. And uh, you, you have an interesting uh, kind of anecdote about that in your book. So can you kind of talk us through what you remember from the night of that trade and the subsequent drafting of Tatum at three instead of one?
3: Well, all I remember about that and I always put it together it reminds me of the same way what happened uh, when we got Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale. And, you know, at that time, Kevin McHale, if you look at it clearly going, wow, Kevin McHale should have been the first pick in the draft. But, no, it was Joe Barry Carroll was consensus going to be the, the, you know, the big who was going first. So Golden State, they actually had come to me that summer and said, you're a free agent right now. We're going to offer you a free agent sheet. And our lineup is going to be, because we're picking third in the, the draft, we have Robert Parrish, we're, we're going to draft this kid, Kevin McHale, and you. That's going to be our front line for the future. <laughs> Two days later, I'm looking at this thing on ESPN that said, Robert Parrish is traded, and the for, for the first round pick, and the Celtics go from first to third, and you didn't know who they were going to take, and it turned out to be Kevin McHale. So... You got Kevin McHale and Robert Parish, two Hall of Famers, for Joe Barry Carroll, the number one pick in the draft. Now you look at Markell Folks when he came out, and the same move the Celtics did again. Danny Ainge, Markell Folks, Philly said they wanted Markel Folks, and and Danny had the third pick in, I mean, Philly had the third pick in the draft. Boston goes down to three. Billy goes up to one and gives the Celtics a draft pick in cash, and we take Tatum instead of Markel Folks. And uh, hey, the rest is history. Dumb, dumb and Dumber. That movie, that's <laughs> Dumb, Dumber, and Dumber again. Okay, that's how that went. Max, I, I, pardon me, but what do your grandkids call you? What's your uh, grandpa name? Uh, well, my oldest grandson, he is, um, he's fifteen. So he told me one day, I think he was first first talking, he saw me someplace, and I was like, look, and he just screamed out, Grandpa. And I remember turning around like, I was like, wonder who he was talking to? I didn't. didn't <laughs> I hadn't even taken it in. And so now my one-year-old granddaughter, uh, she's here. She hasn't talked yet, but I think I'm going to go by Papa.
2: Papa. Cool. Add it to the, the list of nicknames. I mean, Cornbread probably yeah. sticks a little more but yeah yeah, yeah yeah all right so uh i have i want to ask you about um jaylen and some stuff about black lives matter because that shows up mm-hmm. in the book first i want to ask you what you see in Jalen um as a leader uh just either vis-a-vis the black lives matter protests from last summer or just in the league and in the world what do you what have you noticed you know,
3: i think it's i think it's just our players i think it's our players now i think that the league has gotten to the point where they think about other things in life because they're so so much socially involved on or with their social platforms that they're involved in all these things. You look at uh, Cancer the other day; he ended up saying, uh, "You know, the the government of China right now free Tibet, and China took all the supplement games off TV. Can you imagine how much money that's costing?" the Celtics or wherever it is right now because they're not on TV in front of a billion people and what the commissioner would have done to you if you had said that you can go back where it happened that somebody said something about Chandler before and Chandler did something with the NBA and they lost money and seriously had to go back and backtrack Mm -hmm. so I, I just think that I think that we are in so many ways we are we're captured right now by you know our environment be it money, be it social injustice, be it social causes, NBA players have just changed now. Uh, you know, nothing that I, one of the greatest leaders we have right now might be LeBron James. And that dwarfs what Jordan did, because Jordan didn't want to be involved in politics. He wanted to play basketball. And that's what he did. And when his shoes were being sold in China or wherever it was in, in, in Taiwan or wherever it was, and they were supposedly sweatshops, they asked Jordan about it. And Jordan essentially just, you know, just blew whatever was off. And some about Republicans. And he said, well, they speakers shoes. too choose yeah. too. So it's, Jordan was just, Jordan was, wasn't a guy. And so our league at that time didn't follow as many social issues or stand up for social issues the way they did today or the way they did during the 60s. When you look at Muhammad Ali, when you look at art during the 70s and the 80s, we became a lot more passive about it instead of what's going on now and then what went on in the 60s. Uh, I talked to Sat Sanders about it, who, you know, I can't even imagine how you couldn't go into a place and actually eat on the road if you were a, uh, if you were a Black player. Uh, I saw the movie um, The Green Book, and they mm-hmm. talked about, uh, Bill Russell not being able to eat in a certain restaurant in Birmingham, Alabama.
5: And, uh, also.
3: Yeah, yeah, and it and it takes me back to when I was, a, and all this takes me back to when I was a child. Uh, me being in Kinston, North Carolina, and there were colored water fountains. There was it was white white restrooms. There were the, the doctor's offices, places you couldn't go. We used to go to Myrtle Beach and I think I have this in the book. Myrtle Beach, North South Carolina. Every year we come back and go to Myrtle Beach, and there was a, a beach and God knows black beach called Atlantic Beach. I don't know Atlantic Beach of all beaches, and uh, you that was a black beach. And literally, when you went to the beach, you went down the street, and there was a chain link fence which went out in the water about as long as the football field. So. Blacks could not get in white water, or or whites couldn't get in black water. If that if that made any sense, and right. I guess it did at that time. So that's talked about a little bit about the book, and so I, I, I I've been through this social climate all my life, and uh, had to deal with so many different things, and then finally to get to Boston, and you know when people kept talking about the busing issues in Boston,
5: mm-hmm. I had
3: already been through that in high school, and then junior high. So it was it was something I dealt with when it was just getting to Boston, South Boston, where a uh, black man was stabbed with an American flag, and they and they a protest of, of a book. It's a famous picture. A matter of fact, I'm trying to get the gentleman on to my podcast just to talk to him about that that particular wow. issue. It was it, there were there were things that happened. So in my life that have encapsulated a lot of different things.
2: well so Alex and I are history teachers so we we know exactly where you're going with this but I'll just say as a kid who grew up in Newton we learn about segregation in the south we don't learn about Boston's history in the 70s and 80s and the dirty stuff that happened there so I will encourage people to read your book because you talk about that your lived experience but if anyone's a Bostonian who doesn't know what we're talking about I would take the the time to, to look into it because it's we, we talk a lot about racism in other parts of the country in Boston. Sometimes we don't do the work of talking about it here. And I, I was going to ask you about it, but you, you answered yeah, that beautifully.
3: I, and here's the thing. I've been asked about that, about Boston. And people, Kyrie Irving was saying something. And I, I wanted to say it was Kevin Durant was saying something about the city. And what I'll say is that, first of all, while I was playing basketball, I never really saw that in the Boston Garden. Now, I know I'm not ignorant to the fact that I was a basketball player athlete, so I was maybe immune to some of that. But at the same time, what I do know is Boston does not have a monopoly on Mm racism. Let's just make sure everybody, oh, it's the most racist. Not even close when you think about what Boston is as a city compared to some of the other cities. Uh, Dominic Wilkins just recently was in Atlanta, GA, where he is. He is renowned as a superstar player and couldn't go into a restaurant as, as Dominique said, Dominique said, he said because of the color of his skin that he was not allowed to go in there. And that was uh, about a year, that was about a year ago. So let's, let's get over this whole Boston is the most racist place around.
2: Yeah. I mean, certainly we, we have some work to do, but I, I think some of the, conversations that we have trying to be less racist than others. It's, it's a problem everywhere, right? Uh, yeah. So, so Max, I have one more question, but before uh, let's just plug the book one more time. The book's called if these walls could talk Boston Celtics stories from the Boston Celtics sideline locker room and press box. So first I got one more question, but thank you so much for your time. Okay. And, and best of luck with the book. Of course. Um, can you tell the Jimmy Carter story? The Jimmy Carter
3: story really <laughs> made me laugh. <laughs> could, could we close with that? I was, um, I played in uh, UNC Charlotte mm-hmm. and when my junior year, we went to the NIT and we became overnight sensations. I became overnight sensation because I was a country boy who was there and a bunch of my teammates used to tease me and they would, you know, say things. They used to call me the franchise. And, and then we had a, a kid who came from New Jersey. His name was um, uh, Winston, Jerry Winston. And he went and saw a movie called Cornbread, Earl and Me. And Jamal Wilkes played in this movie. And he played, he portrayed a basketball player. And the basketball player, he just, that's uh, all he did. And finally got killed by the police because he was, just doing, he was doing nothing. So I just kind of laughed about that when he was telling me about the movie. And he said, you look like cornbread. So reporters heard it. And then they just ate it up man southern kid cornbread and they went to cornbread maxwell so we played played really well in nit uh that year and we were runners up and matter of fact i was the most valuable player on the losing team to kentucky and um we come home and when we came home in in 76 uh it was it was it was presidential election time uh, people are running for running for the president, and Jimmy Carter happened to be in Charlotte the same day ah! we came back. They bring me on stage, and they, and he's sitting there and said, "I love my some cornbread. I love cornbread." <laughs> and he brings me up on the stage. I'm like, "What am I doing up here?" Didn't even know I'm a a basketball player. That's all I am. So that was a a funny story when I think about it. And, you know, there was another story I actually put in. There was Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was um, at the Democratic National Convention in Boston when they had it there. And I was all excited. And then I got a little bored. It was at the Garden. And I decided to leave. And then they were telling me about some guy named. Obama, Barack, some I was like, who? I don't know who this is. I had the ticket. I walked out two minutes before he gave the speech, which was going to put him in the national spotlight. <laughs> I, I'm always one of these people who are right there, for whatever reason, right on the footstep of history. Like, I was there for the Boston Marathon bombing. Mm-hmm. I was there at the finish line. I walked away no more than seven minutes, walked down to... Um, rat picked up a pair of shoes and the first bomb goes off I was like what was that we all go to the window the next bomb goes off we all like see people scrambling around I come out and I walk up to a police officer I see all these people running and I said what what happened he said go home go Max go home right now I was like why come here girl come here come here (laughs) and uh, he said go home right now I was like why he said There was a bomb that there was something exploded. I said, anybody get hurt? He said, yeah, people got killed. And I watched, I went back and watched TV almost in the exact place I was standing, maybe well, maybe a hundred feet away, was where the first bomb went off. And I was like, wow. So always seemed like I'm always there, someplace in that, that, that annals of history. Well,
2: how you landed on this podcast, I don't know, then, because you've meeting presidents and
3: <laughs> making the news. But we appreciate your time very much. It, it happens. I mean, I was in Milwaukee like this, and I see, I see a guy, everybody surrounding him. I'm like, why is everybody surrounding this guy? And I look down, and I see it was, it was um, uh, Bill Clinton. So me, I walked through everybody. I walked through all security. I walk up to him. I said, "Mr. Clinton, I introduced introduce myself." He's like, "Hey, hey, I, yeah, I know you, man. I used to root for you." And so now I'm all excited, and I have I have my telephone. I said, "Can we take a picture together?" And he said, "Sure." I got my camera, and there was a guy standing near me. I said, "Hey, could you take a picture?" He goes, Mm-mm, "No." <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I kind of looked at him like, "What are you talking about?" He said, "I said." FBI? No, is it Secret Service? He goes, yeah, I'm Secret Service. <laughs> so I'm always doing something that's like like in, in, in a mixture when you're going, man. Well, that's why we love cornbread, right? It
2: happens. it happens. All right. Well, Cedric, thanks so much for taking time off of your your meeting with presidents and your meeting with grandkids to, uh, to hop on the podcast. We really
3: appreciate well, it. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. And Again, I'll give my own plug out again. If these were called by Cedric Maxwell inside the locker room, all the stories you might hear and not hear from Kevin McHale to Bird to Parrish, Dennis Johnson, even to the famous ones we have right now, Jason Tatum, who really kind of didn't know who I was until he watched 30 for 30. And I was out shooting, he was out shooting that day, and he walks in going, Corporate, Corporate. <laughs> I said, dude, what's wrong with you? I said, man, I saw you on that 30 for 30. Damn, you a bad motherfucker. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, even that that's how it kind of ended. But thank you guys for having me. Hey, pleasure's always. All right, guys. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. All right, bye-bye.